Um, so we're going to be in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 13. And uh, this, uh, God willing, will be the last sermon uh, of, this, uh, of this passage for this time. And so I, I'm, I'm appreciative that you guys have stuck, stuck it out and hung out with us. I think it's been a, a, a great series for us. Reason being is I think that we can very easily slip into this idea that it doesn't matter what we do, doesn't matter how we act, I'm forgiven, and so I'll just uh, act any way that I choose. And 1 John, I think, really has uh, some great instruction for us uh, in this time and in this place. It's really talking a lot about love. He's been talking about love, love for your brother. Like, if you have love for God, that's shown through love through your brother or sister, not just your immediate family, but through people around you and even your fellow human being, that we love people. And it's talking about, uh, it's deeply embedded in the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and that we must believe in Him. And so last week we were talking about this idea of what is faith? What does it look like and what does it mean? And my hope in and through this is that you have been uh, encouraged in this uh, so that you will know that you have eternal life. Or that if you're somebody who does not have eternal life, if you're somebody who is just kind of on the fence and not really walking with Jesus, that you would be awakened to the reality of what it means to walk with Jesus so that you can make a decision. And my prayer is that you would make a decision to walk with Jesus today if you haven't done so yet, to take that step and to uh, confess your sins to him. Um, let's, let's get into uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 13. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has uh, I'm sorry, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. That's kind of an abrupt ending, wasn't it? Oh, okay, okay. John, let's talk about what it looks like to close a sermon, right? <laughs> let's bring it down to it and it just like abruptly end. Oh, all right, well, I guess we're done. Okay, all right. There's a reason for that, and I think it's a good reason, and we'll get to that in just a couple minutes. Uh, if you were to look at the passage here with me, you would see a few things. Look at the first verse in, in verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of, God, Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He is concluding 
this letter, and he is summarizing a few things. Here's a few things that you need to know that I've been asserting all along, but I want you to hear it one last time, and so there's a little bit of repetition here, but he is saying, I want you to know that you have these things. I want you to know it. I want you to know that you have, that you possess it, that it is yours. It's not that you have to go get it. It is yours. You have it. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? It's important because of this, because you and I oftentimes do not know what we have. We don't know what we're in possession of. We don't understand the reality of who uh, God is in our lives. And so we have gone along, we've been lulled to sleep by American Christianity, which means that I go to church, I try to do what's right occasionally, and then, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fairly good person and, and this and that and the other thing, and so, and therefore, I'm, I'm a Christian. But the thing that we don't do is we don't take, uh, take hold of the things that we already have. We don't see the value in it. My brother, my oldest brother, went to a flea market one time, saw this painting. He likes weird things. I don't know why he's buying paintings. You would never find me in a flea market, number one. Number two, you'd never find me buying a painting. But my brother bought a painting. I think it was like for $35 or something like that. So he goes and he buys this painting because he thought it was cool. He always gets us weird gifts like these carved images. And we're like, oh, thank you. We'll put that under the couch. Um, uh, hopefully he never watches this. Actually, I do, but uh, <laughs> that's another story. All right, uh, so he buys this painting. It's sitting on his wall, and then I, I think he told me the story, which was that he decided to start, uh, you know, um, he was looking at it, and he was like, man, this thing just, it looks like it might be signed, like it's signed by an artist. I wonder who this is. And so he starts looking up this artist. He begins to find out that this, this thing might be worth some money. So he takes it and gets it appraised, and it's worth thousands of dollars, like thousands of dollars. So he sends it to like Sotheby's, like an auction or, or something like that, Sotheby's or Christie's or something like that, and sells it, and I think he got $7,000 something along those lines. And here's the thing, is that he had this thing of value that was sitting on his wall for a long time. He was looking at it and he was just like, that's a nice painting, I like it. I have no idea why he thought that, but he thought, this is a nice painting. I like it, I like to look at it. I like to, you know, I like to glance at it. It takes up a nice space on my wall. Now, is or are the things that God has given you and has given me in relation to our faith in Jesus Christ, are they nice things that fit on a wall or are they things of in, in immense value that we are consistently engaged with? Are the things of God window dressing? Are they wall dressing? Or are they things that are deeply embedded in your life and, and, and you are operating in the power of the Spirit knowing that you have these things? And if I had to guess, you're probably a lot like me. And that is that I operate in my own power, in my own way, without understanding the things that I have way too frequently, way too frequently. And so what happens is this, is that we languish in ineffectiveness, sinfulness, and prayerlessness on a regular basis. And we don't realize that we have something that is so valuable, and yet we do not take advantage of it. It's just sitting on the wall. 
just like, it's like wall faith. It's, it's wall faith. It's not life faith. It's wall faith. And so what he says is he's, he says to them, first off, let me read this one more time, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, some of us have a problem. And the problem is this, is that we don't want to be presumptuous. We don't want to be presumptuous in saying, I know that I have eternal life. I know that I'm there. I know that I have it. Here's the problem with that line of thinking, that that is the exact opposite of what the Word of God says. That's the exact opposite. If you're a Christian, you must have this assurance, this confidence, this absolute conviction that you have eternal life with God through Jesus Christ, that you have this. And to think anything else is to actually doubt the word of God. I wrote this earlier this week. Some of us have pride that leads us to doubt the work of God. And we say, God isn't able to save me. God isn't able to do these things. God isn't able to, um, to, to save me from what I, I've done. I've got to languish in this ineffectiveness. And, I, and I've got to work and try to get my salvation back. And so we completely doubt the work of God. And others of us doubt the word of God. We doubt the work of God in saying, like, the work of God, he, what he's done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross, and we say, that wasn't enough. I have to penalize myself. I have to languish in shame. I have to be somebody who's beating myself up all the time, and that is pride, that God's work wasn't enough. But then there's some of us who doubt the word of God, and we say something like, why wouldn't he save me? I mean, look at my life. Look at the way that things are. See, Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. What does that mean? It means this, that you must look at the word of God and you must see the reality of what the word of God says about you and me. That without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Without, without him, without his work on the cross, I, I'm, I'm nowhere. That all of my righteousness, all of my righteous deeds are like filthy rags insofar as I believe that those are the things that are saving me. It's, it's not worthy of salvation, all the good things that I've done. They merely prove that I might be saved, but it's not worthy of salvation. See, some of us doubt the work of God and some of us doubt the word of God. We doubt what God says about us. So there's a pride on, e on either side. There's a pride that says, I'm not sure that I deserve this. I'm not sure that this, is, that, that this is for me. I'm not sure that I should have this. But John says, I've written this entire book, and I believe he's referring back to the entire book. And he's saying, I want you to have this incredible confidence that if you have believed in the name of the Son of God, that you may not be kind of sure, that you may not have just a slight assurance, but that you may know, that you may have this knowledge that you have eternal life and you've got to claim it. It's got to be a part of your life. I know that I have eternal life because I have faith in Jesus Christ. I don't just believe in God. I believe God. 
I don't just believe that he exists. I believe in the work that he's done for me on the cross. I believe what the word says about me. I believe it. And so I have relationship with God. You must know that you have eternal life. And if you don't know that yet, then you've got to read it again, read it again, and read it again. And let me just tell you, I don't think that this is a one and done type thing. We all go through periods in life where we say, do I love God? Do I have a relationship with God? Am I walking with him in the way that God would have me walk with him? Do, do I have this assurance? Oftentimes I can point to sin. It points to a sinful lifestyle. It points to a habitual sin that we've been engaged with for some time. It's pointing to, uh, in some way, like we're not with the community of faith. People believe that they can be a Christian and just never attend church, never engage in community. And I would just say this, you may be a Christian, but you would be a bad one. You would be one who is just weak sauce because you don't have the community of faith around you uh, to help you, to encourage you. You're not telling anybody about your sin. You're not telling anybody about your doubts. You're not telling anybody about what's going on in your life. You're not serving other people and allowing the Spirit of God to work through you to encourage other people. Why do you doubt your uh, eternal life? It's because you're not engaging. You're not obedient to the Scriptures. And we don't like that idea. We don't like the idea that I may or may not be obedient. I once said that to somebody. I probably was too harsh when I said it, but it just devastated him. And he got so angry with me that I would say that you would call me disobedient. And then months later, he left his wife and, and walked away because he was not involved in a church. And I'm not saying that being in church makes you stay in your marriage. There's lots of people who have gotten divorced. But I can tell you this. I saw the cracks in his foundation. I saw what was going on in his life, and I called him on it. And let me just tell you, eternal life, the security of eternal life comes through engaging with God's people, engaging with his, his, his word, doing what is right. That's when we have eternal life because we have faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That word confidence, uh, should, uh, not, it shouldn't, shouldn't be, but it's, it, it could also be boldness. And this is the boldness that we have towards him. This is, this is a boldness that can be expressed in our faith. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, that's a mouthful. Now, but what does it say? Well, the first thing, that, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what John wants you to know. The second thing that he wants you to know that you have, and that is that he hears you and he answers your prayer. He answers prayer. And this is the prayer that God always answers. What is that prayer? Is it when you have enough faith? If you just have enough faith, if you just, if you just say these things, then you can kind of twist the arm of God, and God will give you whatever you want. If you just have enough faith, God's going to do exactly what you want. And if you do not have the things that you want, then you must not have enough faith. Everything I just said for the last minute is heresy. All right, that's, that's hair. If you're like, I'm sorry if you're nodding your head. I, 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 I'm not going to look at anybody. I, I didn't see you. That's what, I, that's what I didn't do. Well, maybe Dexter. But uh, no, good to see you again, buddy. Glad you're back again. Don't leave now. Okay. Uh, 
He says, this is the confidence that we have towards him. We have this boldness. So we've got to know that we have eternal life. And then the second thing we, that we got to know is that he hears us when we ask anything that is according to not my will, but thy will be done according to his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know how to pray? Do you know how to pray according to the will of God? This is what John Stott says. He says, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours. But prayer is the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace his will, and align ourselves with his will. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. Prayer cannot be, must not be something where we're trying to bend the will of God, subordinating him to us. Do you realize that whoever it is that, that, that you hear say this, a lot of times, not all the time, a lot of times, it is, it, uh, they are the TV preachers who talk about how you must have enough faith and then God will give you what you want. And I want to tell you this, that that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie. It is not true. What must happen is this, is that when we pray, we're aligning ourselves. Uh, John Stott used the word subordinating our will. That means we're become, becoming obedient to the will of God through prayer to God. That means that as I'm praying and I'm talking to him, it is a confession as much as it is a request. And the confession is this, is that we must, no matter what we say, must align ourselves with the will of God. Now, we don't know exactly what the will of God is, but our posture has got to be, Lord God, if it is your will, would you heal this person? Lord God, if it is your will, would you bring about a great movement in our city? See, people think that if we go down to the Capitol and we pray, we can force the, God, the hand of God. We can force his hand if we just go down there and we pray enough. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray. But I'm saying this, that we cannot force the hand of God into doing whatever we think that he should do. We can pray that he would move, and that is a good thing to do. We can pray that his will would be done in our city. We can pray that his will would be done in the life of the people that are around us. But prayer has got to be done according to his will. And when we're praying in that way, the great confidence that we have is not just that we're, we're praying or that we're going to get what we want. It's that the God of the universe hears us. He hears you. Did you know that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, hears your prayers? Did you know that the creator hears you? The one who created all things he created everything, and he hears you. He hears your prayers. He hears, what, he, he hears your requests. That is an amazing thing. And do you know what? 
if we don't know that he hears us, it's just a wall decoration. Ah, oh, it's a prayer. That's cool. That's nice. And we don't know what we have. We don't understand what we have. See, assurance expresses itself in a confidence that our prayers are heard and answered according to his will. When we have the assurance that we have eternal life, that assurance expresses itself in our prayer life. If you're not praying, what you can point back to is this, that I don't have assurance of my salvation, that I am not sure of this. Now people, let me, let me just say this, People oftentimes just going, but I don't know. I don't know. Have I put enough faith in Jesus? Did I, did I really believe? People who don't know Jesus don't worry about those things. If you're worried about it, guess what? That's a good indication that you want it. You can't want it without the Spirit of God moving in your heart. Therefore, you have the Spirit of God. Therefore, you want Him. Therefore, you're in. You're a part of it. You are there. Do you have a relationship with God? You should have assurance that you have relationship with God, that you have eternal life. And therefore, that should lead you to confidence in prayer. Assurance expresses itself through confidence in prayer. Now, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, there is a sin that does lead to death. I do not say that anyone should pray for that, John says. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, this is horrendously confusing and argued about. Let me give some clarity here. Um, well, let me read from one commentator because I think he, he puts it better than I, I can right now. He says, when the author speaks of sin that leads to death, it is very likely, likely, we don't have, we're not absolutely sure exactly what he's talking about, but it is very likely that he has <coughs> the sin of the successionists in mind. That's a group of people who... Uh, they are people who deny that Jesus is the Christ, come in the flesh, and also deny the significance of his atoning death. This would mean that they place themselves outside the sphere of forgiveness, and their sins become sins unto death. Okay, so track with me here real quick. This is not just about this phrase. Now, there are, there are several different positions that people take on this. Most commentators, good commentators, say, we simply don't know what John meant. Like, apparently, those people knew what the sin unto death was. Uh, we do not know what it is. Catholics believe uh, that there are venial and mortal sins. Mortal sins can't be forgiven. Venial sins can. Uh, that kind of thing. They believe this is where they get that, um, that idea. Most of us who are evangelicals would not buy into that at, at all. And so uh, what's confusing about this is that there's several different uh, ways that you could look at this, and, but what can also be is that we're totally missing the point of what John was trying to say. Let me give you a couple of other options. Uh, three total. Uh, number one, it's a specific deadly sin. So like murder, adultery, um, 
I don't, you know, whatever, whatever other things are really, really, really bad, like stabbing somebody or something like that. I, I, I don't know. But a specific deadly sin. So that would be kind of more of the Catholic viewpoint. The second one would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which uh, this would be a, a deliberate, open-eyed rejection of known truth. It is verbal, knowledgeable, and continual rejection of known truth about Jesus. In the book of Mark, the work of Jesus is ascribed to uh, the devil, and that is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, those are two positions now that we would not agree with, or that I would not agree with. Uh, the, the third one, I'm more in line with, but I can't be sure, and most commentators that I've read cannot be sure either. But the third one is total rejection of the gospel. It's the one sin that you can't be forgiven of when you reject the gospel. All other sins can be forgiven. But if you reject the gospel, not even prayer is going to help with that. So, but we don't know why. Why does John say you shouldn't pray for that? Should we not pray for our non-believing friends? We absolutely should pray for them. That's why this is confusing. But let me get back to a couple of other things here. Uh, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life. What's John's point? That we should not just um, uh, enjoy the idea that God hears us and he answers our prayer and that we're praying in accordance with his will, but we should also lift up other people, especially as it pertains to sin. See, the community of faith oftentimes turns a blind eye towards what's going on in the church. We see the relationships that are happening. We see that this is a relationship that's headed down the wrong path. It is wrong because there's sexual immoral, uh, immorality involved. It's wrong because of any number of things. A, a, a husband isn't treating his wife right or those kinds of things. We see somebody who's just not uh, carrying on in their business correctly. And then we turn a blind eye to it and we say, well, I don't want anybody calling me out. But John says, listen, when we see these things, like we should lift those people up in prayer. What we should not do is lift them up in gossip. Like, hey, did you see what that person did? Did you see what happened in that situation? Hey, I heard, uh, you know, something, something along those lines, uh, hit, letting it hit the prayer chain. Hey, I just really want to, you know, lift this person up in prayer because they totally jacked everything up. That's actually happened to me, and I thought it was so cliche. I was like, seriously, that hit the, the prayer chain? Like, that was just a mode of gossip. What this is saying is that we as individuals should lift people up in prayer who are struggling with sin, and, and God will give him life. Now, we believe that we have life already because we have eternal life, but there is a sense in which we're operating in death even though we have life. We're operating in death because we're sinning against God, and what's happening is we're not experiencing the fullness of God as we continue in sin. And so what should we do? We should lift those people up in prayer, and we should ask that God would give them life. And it seems like a sure thing, that God will give him life. Now back to this theological issue of which I really do believe that it, that it is talking about this, the first thing that I read here. Um, as he, he's talking about these people, this succession, or secessionists, these people who deny that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, 
and also de deny the significance of his atoning death. Now, just this last week, I, I, I came across a, a sermon um, that had a title that was provocative. The guy who gave it knew that it was provocative. And it was something to the effect of why um, Jesus isn't the point of the scriptures or why you don't need Jesus. I mean, it was, it was so blatant. And so I thought, ah, there's got to be a hook in here somewhere where he's kind of coming around and he's gotcha. And it really is Jesus, you know. And so I'm sitting there listening to a sermon that sat there and denied and denied and denied the work of Jesus Christ. Denied that you should believe. In fact, he stated that uh, you, Jesus doesn't want you to believe in him. And, and, and I just, I, I was like, there are so many scriptures that we could list on this right now. I just like wanted to like, you know, paste a commentary onto his, you know, Facebook page. Like, hey, have you read ever? Like, you, even a cursory review of the scriptures would show you that this is wrong. But here is somebody who is dissuading people from the, the truth of Jesus Christ. And he also dissuades people from the atoning death. We've talked about this over and over again, that Jesus is the point of the scriptures. And that is why it is so difficult to say his name in public, because it matters. There is power in the actual name of Jesus Christ. There is real power there. That why else? No one is saying, ah, Muhammad, you know, nothing. What in Muhammad's name are you doing? Or Buddha or whoever else, all right? No one's saying that. It is a little bit longer. It has a few more syllables, but uh, that may be part of it. But the, other, the, the essential part of it is this, that there's power in the name of Jesus. There is, it, there's truth there. Why would you denigrate Jesus? Because there's truth there. The evil one is after him. The evil one does not want you to know about the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made himself. The evil one does not want you to believe this. This is why people would try to dissuade us from this. And, and in large part, I would look at that and I would say that that, in my opinion... That has got to be a sin that leads to death. Is that as you dissuade people from Jesus and as you're leading them away, you're leading them away from the most important thing that's ever happened in history, the most important person that ever was, saying that all roads lead to God, you are, you're gone. Does that mean that you could never come back? I cannot make that determination. Perhaps some of you are sitting here this morning saying, I feel like I've done that. I don't know that I can be forgiven. I want you to know that if you feel conviction in this, that Jesus is calling you to himself. Answer him. Repent and walk in faith. Repent of that and walk in faith. No one should walk in fear. We should walk in the confidence that we have eternal life. Look at the next Verse. So we've talked about two things so far, eternal life and answered prayer. And uh, the third thing that we want to talk about is protection from sin. Uh, uh, verse 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, 
but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, that says a couple of things, and one of those is kind of like an uh-oh statement. Like, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. And if I, I, those of us who are, are real in here this morning, I don't, you don't need to raise your hand, but like, have, have, have we sinned? Uh, I've sinned. I've sinned. What's this saying? I've sinned this week. I probably sinned this morning. All right? I said fiddlesticks on the way here, but... I prob- I've, I've done something. What is it? Does that say that you cannot sin at all? What's it saying? It's saying that going on and on in a habitual, continual, intentional sin, saying, ah, God will forgive me. It's saying, I don't care what's happening. You know, I, you know I, I look at the gospel and I think, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Paid for my sin? Awesome. I'll go do whatever I want. That position is called antinomianism. FYI. It's called antinomianism. And it means this, that I will just sin with impunity because I believe that I've been saved by grace. And so what... John is asserting here is, first of all, that you, that you may know that you have eternal life, and you may know that you have answered prayer, and that you may know that you have protection from sin. See, it's not all on you. So look at it. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. See, it said born of God twice. The firstborn of God are all believers for all time. The second born of God is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God is the one who protects you and I from the evil one. The Son of God is the one who keeps us, who holds us. He's the one that that keeps us away from the evil one. And so what can take place in your and my life is this, is that we don't have to sin. We don't have to be under the control under the demand of the ruler of this age, which is Satan. Do you look, did you see the second verse there? He says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The entire world is in the power of the evil one, with the exception of, people, of the people of God who have eternal life in God through Jesus Christ. The entire world is under the control. It is under the dominion of the evil one. All things. There's no middle ground. Remember, we've talked about this several times. John is very black and white. The scriptures are very black and white. Either you're with God or you are with Satan himself. He said, I don't, I, I don't uh, you know, I'm not really with Satan. No, we don't have drinks or anything, but, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's true. Don't you think that the greatest attack that Satan can have on you is an attack that you don't even see? That you don't even know is happening? That we, before Jesus, that we don't even know that we're an operative of the evil one, that we are engaged with everything that he is doing. And even though we may try to do good, we still are motivated by evil. We're motivated by the power of Satan. 
we're under his control. What this verse is saying is that we don't keep on sinning because, not because uh, we're so powerful, not because we've just done our homework and we're just white knuckling this, but because Jesus is protecting you and Jesus is protecting me. Jesus is the one who's working in us. We taught on this a little while ago, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one who's working in you. He's the one that's causing you to desire to do what's right. See, the desire of a believer in Jesus Christ is this. I look at my life. I look at the state of my life. I look at the sin that I commit. And it starts with the desire. It is God who's working in me both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. It is God who's doing this in your life. Do you know what that means? It means that God is the one that is protecting you. Now, you're not perfected yet. When you come up out of the baptismal waters, it's not like, ah, I am perfect. It's, that's not the way that it goes. It's progressive sanctification. It's taking steps every day towards Jesus and not toward the evil one. It's taking steps towards God and saying, God, I want to make progress in this area. My body feels like I have to have this. My life feels like I'm, I need this. Lord God, show me the sin of my life. And you know what God is faithful to do? He is faithful to reveal to you little by little the sin that's in your life. He's faithful in that. He's faithful to show you, like, hey, there's some sin in your life in this area. And conviction comes, and then we become obedient to God. Because it is God who works in us both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So God is the one who's protecting us. So we, he, we have eternal life. We have answered prayer. We have protection from sin. And lastly, we have this, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you know what you have? You have the true God. Look at the last, last uh, verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last verse in the book. Why does he say that? We're contrasting true with false. What is an idol? An idol is a counterfeit God. An idol is a false God. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. An idol is anything that you and I worship. We worship with our time, with our money. We, we worship uh, by giving things up for our idols. So John is saying, the way that you express the truth that he is the true God is that you keep yourselves from idols. Now, John, this is kind of amazing because he just got done saying like, hey, Jesus is the one who protects you. But listen, keep your nose clean. Do not, or, or, or he says, keep yourselves from idols. Don't worship idols. 
Worship the true God. Worship the living God. Engage with him. He says, we must understand that we're serving the true God. So how does this work in our life? It works in our life by, by saying this. If all of life is worship, if I come forth, I'm born, I'm created as a worshiper, and that's the truth about me, that all of us are born as worshipers. We're constantly drawn to worship. You look at the, the political fights that are going on and how we're drawn into those to our side. We're drawn into a kind of worship. It's a worship of a side. It's a worship of a particular view. No matter how right we think it is, it is worship. You look at your, your job and your, your work, and whether you, you love it or you hate it, there is worship there. You're worshiping the time that you spend. You're worshiping the advancement that you have. You're worshiping the money that you get. You're worshiping the approval that you get. Or you may be worshiping something else in your work, and that is not working. So you're worshiping self as you go to work, and you, you know, try to stiff-arm your boss, and you try to not take on other projects, and so there's a sense of laziness in your job. And your job may stink. I, I mean, I, I'll give it to you. That might be the case. But that is a sense of worship. Because we're always supposed to work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. So we, we're constantly worshiping. And instead of worshiping the true God, we're worshiping an idol. What is our culture saying right now? Our culture is saying, worship the idol of sexuality. Worship the idol of sexuality. And that means that whatever you want to be, sexually speaking... You should be that. Whatever you desire, whatever is in your will. They just produced a video series for kids. Uh, someone told me it's for the sixth grade in junior high. It's a cartoon talking about how, you know, all of the various genders and things like that. And let me just tell you, people that are confused in regards to gender are people that are worthy of dignity and value and love. But I got to tell you that when you teach something that is absolutely unscientific and asinine to my child, that's frustrating. Why is that frustrating to me? Well, people who are under the control of the evil one are worshiping the God of gender choice. They're worshiping the God of sexuality. They're worshiping the God of me, of the individual that says that I get to control all the things in my life. I get to control all of the God-given things in my life, and I'm in control of those things, and God is not in control of those things. But we are called to worship the true God, and we worship the true God through our God-given gender. We worship the true God by obeying Him in sexuality. We worship the, tr the, the true and the living God by obeying all of His Word. We worship this God by not making ourselves an idol in church. By not going to the church and saying uh, that, that you are a deliverer of goods and services and so you give me whatever I want. Turning ourselves into a consumer 
and saying that the church should, should wait hand and foot on all of the things that I want. We make ourselves the idol. And do you know that there's plenty of churches in America today that will make you the idol? You walk in and you will find out that you are the idol in this thing. If you will just come and be a part of this, we will make sure that you feel like you're in control, like you are the one, like you are the true God. You're the one that we're worshiping because we're trying to get butts in the seats. We're not worshiping the true and the living God. We're worshiping the individual. This also means that this is exclusive. There is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ and his bloody, sacrificial uh, death that provided propitiation for your sins and atoned for all of the things that you have ever done, that you have ever done, uh, past, present, and future. There is no other way to God. It is exclusive. There is only uh, one way. We just sung it this morning. You are the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to get to God. Do you announce that with the things that you worship? Are you announcing that with your finances? Are you announcing that with, with your sexuality? Are you announcing that in your Facebook post? Are you announcing that with your political uh, alignments? Are you announcing that with the way that you are kind to the people in your, your life? Are you announcing that with the things that are going on? Is this an announcement of I worship the true and the living God or are you announcing to everyone everywhere, I serve the idol of me. I serve my sexuality. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has called you to have eternal life. He has called you to have confidence in that your prayers are answered in, in accordance with his will. He has called you to protection from sin. You have it. It is yours. Won't you take it? He has called you to have the true and the living God. Please keep yourselves from idols. Please take the picture off the wall and utilize all of the value that it is in your life. Are you seeing this value? Please, please, I'm begging you. Won't you see it for all that it's worth? Some of us are, are here this morning and we just refuse to go to God. We just refuse to answer him. We refuse to go to him in faith. And we must understand that when we do that, that we are saying, I am my own Lord and Savior. You might say, I don't put it like that. I just pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm a hard worker and I do this and I do that. But you're your own Lord and Savior. You can't look to Jesus. The only th you're looking to yourself. And I'm begging you, won't you... Put faith in Jesus Christ. Stop being so stinking prideful. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. Jesus went to the cross for you. Why would you just sit, at, sit and look at that and, and laugh? Don't you realize that that is the only sin that Jesus does not forgive? 
that that is the only thing that keeps you from God is your refusal to awaken to the reality of who he is? Respond. Respond to Jesus this morning. Respond to the power of the Holy Spirit. Say yes to Jesus. Say, I see you on the cross. I see what you've done for me, and I want to walk with you. I, I, I see that you poured yourself out for me, and that was because of my sin. My sin put you on the cross. Your love put you on the cross. Your love for me put you on the cross. And receive it by faith. Receive it by believing, trusting in him that what he's done for you is final. Stop putting it off. Don't wait another moment. You may not have another moment. You may not have another time. Lead your family. Lead your life and the power of the Spirit of God. Give yourself to him. You have to. I'm begging you. Would you pray with me? Lord God, my fear is that so many of us in here uh, do not know that we have what you've given us. Would, would you sear into our minds the truth? Lord God, would you, would you break us down? Lord God, whatever it takes, would you break the hearts of people that are resistant towards you? God, would you, would you break their hearts for you? Lord God, I'm praying that you would do whatever it takes. And Lord, that you would be worshipped because of it. May we turn to you. Lord, we are your people who are very self-involved because of social media and a, a world that is under the power of the evil one, Lord, to some degree, the church at times is under the power of the evil one as we've created the individual as the thing to be worshiped. Lord Jesus, would you convict us of these areas in our life? Lord, may we go to you repentantly and confess to you the truth that you are the true and the living God. Lord, may we walk with you for our lifetime and throughout eternity. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.